This is Nate Taylor with Weathervane Productions, and you are listening to The Forecast. Hey there, everybody, and thank you for joining us here on The Forecast by Weathervane Productions. I'm your host, Nathan Taylor. This is our premiere episode launching on New Year's Day 2021. I'm from a small town called Brevard in the mountains of Western North Carolina, just outside the cultural kaleidoscope of Asheville. But I'm not doing this to talk about myself. Today, we have two very special guests that are here to talk about a very special kind of awareness something no parent wants to hear at the doctor's office. Childhood cancer. I have the honor of helping out one of the most powerful nonprofits in the nation, the St. Baldrick's Foundation. You may have heard of the head shaving events. You may have participated in one. If you haven't, please be sure to check out their website at stbaldricks.org to get involved. My wife and I will be doing one ourselves to follow the launch of this podcast. I'm going to let my three-year-old shave my beard off, and she has hair down to her belt that she is willing to shave all the way off for the right amount. See how it works? Take a listen, and you'll soon find out for yourself why childhood cancer research needs your help. I'm pleased to introduce to you Miss Barbara Ritchie, the inspiring momcologist who opened my eyes, and Dr. Wendy Botnor a cardio-oncologist who specializes in researching the effects of cancer treatment on the heart after the children who survive get older. It is no coincidence that the two of them are on this podcast together, but it is the first time they have spoken to one another and the first time they got to see each other. I'll let them explain the rest. Thank you for listening to The Forecast. Barbara Ritchie and Dr. Wendy Botnor. Um, I didn't want to put too much of a structure or anything. I was telling her I got some notes here, um, but I figured it would be, if I need to look down, I will, but I just didn't feel like we I, I would have the need to. Um, once we started uh, kind of getting the ball rolling, I had some questions that came from uh, a friend of mine that I used to work with who had cancer when she was younger, um, and she's actually curious about a couple of things, but um, I think that, uh, I think we're good now. Uh, it, I think we were just having a, like, overload issue with the way I'm recording three microphones at one time, so it just kind of hiccuped for a second, but He's I think it's good. <laughs> I know. This is yeah. like, wow. <laughs> um, I, I'm lucky if I can make good. my Apple TV work, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, I've been... I've been wanting to do this for a while. I actually went to the uh, the uh, Los Angeles Film School for recording, so that's where wow. Um, wow. all this came from. But that's interesting because so. Becky, my daughter, the cancer brat, she um, she went to uh, Brooks Institute for photo video journalism. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, so, those schools really yeah. really neat. Out in California. Yep. That's where it was. It was really cool. Yeah. I got out of the. I got out of California though. I don't yeah, it's a little crazy out there. Yeah. It was different after I got yes. out of service. Um, 
So, uh, what is, um, what is it exactly that you, that you do and your connection with, uh, St. Baldrick's? Yeah, I, that's a great question because, um, you know, St. Baldrick's is the largest private funder of research for childhood cancer mm -hmm. survivors. And so a lot of folks would probably presume that I'm an oncologist right. and that's mm -hmm. actually not the case. Right. Um, I'm a cardio oncologist. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in talking about what I do and my connection with St. Baldrick's probably the best way is by starting to explain what a cardio oncologist is. Um, so my training, um, is actually in cardiology, um, adult cardiology, funny enough. And then I did, um, additional training in cardio oncology specifically. So really what I do is, um, help manage the cardiovascular health of folks who either have cancer or are cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's important, you know, actually the field of cardio oncology is relatively new. Um, and the reason for that actually has to do with the success of our colleagues in the world of oncology, right? Because, you know, we are at a point where thankfully, um, over 80% of children who are diagnosed with cancer will be alive at five years. And so they've had great success and, um, really been able to make a huge difference. But um, as a result of that, and the fact that they have been so successful in curing cancer, we are now at a point where we are starting to see um, what are called late effects mm -hmm. or, you know, kind of long-term consequences of having undergone cancer treatment. Right, and because actually, for five years, I mean, five years for, for like me, if I can have a five-year survival rate, that's great. I'm 65. But if you're talking about a 12-year-old or a 3-year-old, then yes. that doesn't sound so promising. But then they live yeah. to be 65 and they have all these issues. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so actually, um, for our survivors, um, cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of mm -hmm. death. And it falls right behind um, recurrent cancer mm -hmm. or you know secondary malignancies that what that means is it's a cancer that is um, oftentimes a result of treatment. The treatment. Whoa. Because most so, of the treatments are carcinogenic. So I exactly. know they told me that. They said all the treatments my daughter was getting are cancer-causing. So yeah. yeah. They cure cancer, but they can also cause cancer. Right. Wow. Yeah. So those are some of the big issues that um, come up. Mm -hmm. And so that's where... Um, I kind of have a role in this. How do you, how do you huh, fight fire with fire? How do you <laughs> cure cancer with a cancer causing, uh, with a cancer causing cure? How do you do that? What, how does that work? How can, does the, I'm not familiar with how, uh, chemotherapy works or radiation. I just, I mean, and that's obviously carcinogenic because it sounds like it's, hot, mm -hmm. um, literally. Uh, and so, I mean, 
can you explain a little bit about what it, how that, how that works, how chemotherapy yeah. works, how radiation so, therapy works? You know, I think um, the way I, I like to think about it, and you know, I'm just a simple cardiologist living in the yeah. oncology world, but the way I like to think about it is. Um, a lot of the therapies that we use, they can kill cancer cells, but they aren't necessarily specific just right. to cancer cells, right? And um, and that actually may, may lead into some of the other things that we were planning to discuss, like yeah. the immunotherapies. Yep. But getting back to the question, you know, um, a lot of the more traditional therapies don't just target cancer cells. And so because of that, they affect healthy cells in the body too. And one of the effects they can have is um, they can affect the DNA in those mm -hmm. cells, right? Because if you think about it on a very um, simple level, what cancer is um, often has to do with genetics, mm -hmm. right? And changes in a cell's DNA that make it uh, a cell that is no longer healthy, but also makes it a cell that um, essentially has, uh, in a sense, immortality and can keep mm -hmm. dividing and reproducing. And so if you think about cancer as being something that relates to damage or mutations in DNA, then if we're giving agents that can um, damage all cells in the body, not just cancer cells, that re is what causes this potential for other cells in the body to be affected as well and potentially um, result in second cancers. Wow. That is... And the same thing is true you know, for radiation therapy as well. And so that's why, you know, for example, I look at late effects from the heart focus, but mm -hmm. um, there's lots of screening that our survivors need because um, issues like breast cancer mm -hmm. are more common in survivors. Um, there's a lot of different organ systems that can be affected as a result of therapy. Mm -hmm. My um my daughter got um she has um SMA, which is what is it superior mesenteric artery syndrome, and she got yeah. that after chemotherapy, so it just and she went you know it just it's a really rare intestinal um, circulation type issue, mm -hmm. and um, so if she but you you have to like be in the throes of an actual um, episode in order for them to diagnose it. So um, when she was out in California, because she was, I mean, it's just severe debilitating pain and then just really horrible GI issues. Um, and a lot of it gets triggered by certain foods that she eats, but she never knows when she's getting an attack. And when she was out in California and she went in and one doctor diagnosed it. So then afterwards, when she would have these episodes, you know, she would go to the doctor and say, well, this is what I have. And he's like, there's no way that's too rare. And, and then she had an episode and went to the doctor and he's like, oh my God, you do have it. I mean, and she was in her twenties and, yeah. and he's like, you, he said, I, he said, you hardly, you hear about this in med school. He said, you very rarely see it. So here she is 30 something years old and, and she's dealing with um, that issue. Yeah. 
So what caused is- caused by the chemotherapy um, and the radiation. They don't really know what triggered it, but I know in, with what Wendy deals with, um, one of the drugs that Becky um, received during chemotherapy um, is one that damages the heart. And they actually gave me a little card that said she can never get more doses of this. So it was... And um, I forget the exact, I know you're, you know, the exact um, chemical name, but. Um, yeah, I think it was doxorubicin, Yeah, doxorubicin, right? there's yeah. A, there's mm-hmm. a couple of them, but I think mm-hmm. that's the yeah. one that, that Becky had. Yeah, she had um, four doses. And every time she got one, a couple weeks later, they'd have to do a um, echo of her valves and her heart. Because yeah. they said it can mm-hmm. damage the, the heart valves. So. And, and that's um, a lot, actually, of, of what I look at because, you know, it's true that it can damage the valves um, kind of immediately and things mm-hmm. like that. Or I guess um, maybe not damage the valves is the right way to say it, but it can cause heart problems immediately mm-hmm. when people are first getting therapy. But um, for the majority of folks, if it does cause an issue, it's actually later on Mm -hmm. and it can happen even decades after so you know for our childhood cancer survivors by the time they reach age 40 um a rough estimate would be that somewhere around 20 percent have some form of cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. and so that's a really really big number of folks and um that's um who i'm trying to to help Mm -hmm. and thankfully um, St. Baldrick's has been very, very incredible and supportive. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that we, um, as a community are all working towards is we want our survivors to, once they finish therapy for life to go on Mm -hmm. as if they never had cancer. Right. And that actually is what um, made me go into this field because I was very fortunate um, to, during my training, have mentors who helped me um, connect with patients and start to realize and understand that um, the reality is that almost no survivor has that story. Right. It may not be a heart problem, but um, almost every survivor Mm -hmm. has um, some residual issues that, or a late effect that is a result of their therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, you know, St. Baldrick supports a lot of this work. And um, they were part of a study that showed that um, more than 99% of survivors mm-hmm. have a chronic That's health problem. Yeah. Nice. Ca- caused by the chemotherapy and the radiation, the yeah, treatment. Or the radiation therapy. Yeah. And so um, I think it's a really important thing, right? Because I think um, outside of our community, a lot of folks don't necessarily realize that. And I certainly, until, you know, I met my mentors, um, did not realize that mm-hmm. once someone finishes cancer therapy, that's not the end. Mm-hmm. And um, that stinks, and it really should be, yeah. right? 
And yeah. so that's what I'm trying to work on. Um, what I do specifically, so we know that um, our survivors are at risk for developing heart problems. And so because of that, there are a lot of different professional groups who um, recommend that survivors as part of their screening, uh, because you know we, we actually recommend lots of different types of screening mm -hmm. because like we were saying, any organ system can be affected. But there, from the heart perspective, somewhere between every two and five years, um, mm -hmm we should be doing assessments of their heart function and sometimes other blood vessels and things like that as well. And, um, you know, when we do these tests, we get a lot of information, but I think in the world of cardiology, the two big areas that we need to work on to try and help our survivors is one, coming up with even better ways of um, examining people's heart and cardiovascular health mm -hmm. so that we can help um, do an even better job of predicting, well, who's really at risk mm -hmm. for heart disease and who isn't, right? Because, and that's important, I think, in both directions, right? Because if 20% of folks by age 40 have some form of cardiovascular disease, that means 80% don't. don't right. But a lot of those folks still get screening, testing, and still have to live with that stress of wondering, you know, mm -hmm. will they develop a heart problem at some point? So the value of potentially being able to do better testing that reassures the people who are low risk for heart disease is huge. Mm -hmm. But then similarly, the value of being able to identify people who are higher risk early is also really helpful because the sooner you know, the more proactive you can be and the more you can try to do to help. And I think that's actually um, kind of linked with the second area where I think in cardio-oncology, we have a lot of work to do to help our survivors. And that second part is trying to determine, you know, um, when someone does have cardiovascular disease as a result of their therapy, um, what are the most effective treatments for them? Mm -hmm. And that is an area that, to be honest, we struggle with because all the, um, almost all of the data that we use to uh, help inform our decisions about what medicines are going to be best and things like that really doesn't come from this population, right? It comes from um, adults who have heart failure because they had a blockage in the heart artery mm -hmm. and had a heart attack or, you know, people who um, are adults and had um, really long-standing high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so they have heart disease because of that. And there isn't a lot of specific research for people who have heart or blood vessel issues as a result of therapy they received as a child for cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's important because, you know, 
we hope that the medicines we use to, to help our survivors are effective regardless of the cause of their heart dysfunction. But on some level, that can't be the perfect answer, mm -hmm. right? Because the reason for their heart dysfunction is very different than the reason for an adult who is 65 and had a heart attack. And so that matters. And um, that's another area where we need to do a lot of work and trying to figure out, well, for this specific reason, this specific cause of cardiovascular disease, what are the precise medicines that are best? What is the, uh, what's the horizon look like for that? I mean, is it, is it extremely, uh, I don't know, I guess I was going to use light as a metaphor, you know, is it, is it dimmer or brighter? Um, I, I think it's very, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that one, you know, cardio-oncology as a field is really becoming more recognized um, and more people are training in this and becoming invested in um, the cardiovascular health of our community. And so I think one, of course, the more people who are aware and involved, of course, that's always going to be helpful. Um, but, you know, there's also... Um, from the research side, I think a lot of support that, that's coming out. And so um, we have support from foundations like St. Baldrick's, which is huge and absolutely critical. Thankfully, there's also been um, some support um, that is coming now from the federal level too. And so actually... In 2018, Congress passed um, something called the STAR mm -hmm. Act, which is specifically designed to fund research for our childhood and adolescent young adult cancer survivors. And so I think that um, the fact that that act was passed points to the fact that the awareness of this issue is becoming more um, mm -hmm. widespread and that support for really understanding and resolving these issues is um, is becoming more widespread as well. Um, what would you say, uh, how would you describe a day in your life? Like, what's it like doing this kind of research? Um, what, what I feel like as a, an everyday Joe, um, I'm, I would, I'm always curious. Everybody knows the, the term research, but nobody really knows what that means. I think it's... Yeah, and, and I think it looks different for different folks. Um, you know, for some people, research means um, working uh, in a laboratory somewhere where they're mm -hmm. working with cells or mice or things mm -hmm. like that. And um, that work is very, very important. Um, for me, research doesn't quite look like that. Um, for me, uh, my research is centered around patients. And, um, you know, that's the whole reason I got involved in research, because mm -hmm. I saw that there were so many unanswered questions about 
how best to screen for and treat cardiovascular disease in our community. Um, so a lot of what I do is based around heart imaging. And um, one of the things that I'm trying to work on is how do we improve our screening tests? Um, so right now, a lot of folks use echocardiography, which is mm -hmm. an ultrasound of the heart. So similar to like um, when a woman's pregnant and they do an ultrasound of the baby, yeah. it's the same sort of technology. We just move up to the chest and look mm -hmm. at the heart instead. Um, and then the other way that people look is with a cardiac MRI, although that's not as commonly used. And so I'm trying to look for ways to um, improve uh, our ability to screen for and predict who is at risk for mm -hmm. late, the late effect of cardiovascular disease by refining these tests. And so a lot of the, the work that I've done is looking at echocardiography um, and looking at um, the, the echocardiograms of our survivors to try and see, you know, are there ways of measuring heart function um, that maybe aren't what we use every day, mm -hmm. but maybe for our survivors, they should be what we use every day. Yeah. Um, and then similarly, we're trying to do the same thing with MRI and then also try to use MRI to help us understand um, what are the changes that cancer therapies cause, mm -hmm. you know, so how, why is it? What is the underlying thing that they change that results in cardiovascular disease? And I think, you know, it, it's not going to be just me. It's going to take a whole community of folks to figure that out. Um, but I want to be part of that. And I'm working towards that because I think that's critical in determining what medications are best for this precise group of folks, you know, and it'll help us if we understand precisely how the therapies are leading to cardiovascular disease, it'll help us tailor treatments so that we don't have to keep applying data from 65 year olds who right. had heart attacks and we can apply a customized treatment specifically for our survivors. Because, yeah, I've, I've heard in the story with medical research is that it's it's such a long, giant window that it takes to get accurate information. Um, when did, when, and that window just opened, is, is what you're saying. Is that the... Yeah. Yeah. Because... I, you know, I would say um, you're absolutely right. And it takes... Um, I mean, it can take decades to make really significant advances. I think um, some of the foundation has been laid and there's good research to show that this is a problem, that um, it affects a large number of our survivors and that we need to figure out answers. 
And so we've already, you know, demonstrated that it's a problem and that it's affecting a large group part of our community. And now the question from there is, um, how do we fix it? Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks are working in this area, um, and doing some really good things to, to try and help sort this out. So you're saying that your daughter mm -hmm. has a heart condition. Well, it's a, it's a circulation condition, but yeah, it's with one of the arteries. Um, what, and so what was it, what type of cancer was it that she had? She had um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia or lymphocytic leukemia. It's the same thing. Um, but she had a really, um, she was um, poor prognosis, high risk is the little sheet that they handed me when she went into treatment. And um, because um, there's different genes and different um, parts of the white blood cells, there's T cells and B cells. And so there's different little markers. So she had one of the markers and she was 12. So she had all these... There's all these different parameters for leukemia. Actually, like a three-year-old is um, is a more normal age for um, ALL. Um, but when they're oh. when they're pubescent, um, between like 10 and 14, and the amount of um, white cells that they have, the count. So that's what they go by. And her her lymphocyte count was huge, and her bone marrow was like 99% involved with um, with uh, cancer cells. So. So she had a real specific type, and then what they do is it's not one size fits all for the therapy. It's different therapies and different protocols and even different um, regimens and frequencies. Like she was in treatment for three years, but they have all these different, they have interim and then they have intense and then they have maintenance. So, so it's like you have to follow the schedule. I had this little Bible of um, treatments that she received. And so she wasn't getting the really toxic um, chemotherapy all the time. Sometimes it was simply injections um, of um, enzymes, you know, to, to boost her immune cells. Um, and other times it was just low dose. Um, I mean, she was always on an antibiotic for like three years and, um, and she was on things to build her platelets. Um, there were injections to build platelets, but mm -hmm. on other times she had to go in and get um, like spinal taps. They had to do, um, intrathecal chemotherapy she had to have cranial radiation so and so it's not like you have cancer and you're getting all these treatments all the time you're getting them um, they try to minimize the toxicity um, because certain things they they just can't give together yeah. and and I became a momcologist we jokingly call ourselves um, like very early on like how to read what an ANC is and how to read all these counts and and um, how to look at IV bags of blood and make sure it had been leukofiltered. And so it's, it becomes like an entire science in and of itself, but that's the kind of cancer she had. So her treatments were more um, aggressive and more toxic than let's say somebody that just had plain old AOL. So she had, and then there's other kids that have even worse. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's what she had. And so the they specifically took out some of these, um, they talked about some of the treatments she was getting and explained them to me, um, which, you know, you don't know how much you're going to be able to absorb. But, but um, as you're absorbing all this about counts and everything, they said, okay, now you need to watch for this. And we're going into this phase now, and this is going to cause this. So, so we knew 
going in and then as a parent too you have to make these decisions like she developed um a severe allergic reaction to um to some of the proteins that they inject um there's l asparginase and pegasparginase but anyway they um she developed a severe allergic reaction and but you have to complete the treatment um yeah. so i had to make those decisions i think i talked about that that yeah. i had to make those decisions of continue the treatment and risk her having a heart attack or um, to stop the treatment and risk her um, not going into remission. So, so it's, it's something that most people, the general population don't know um, is that a protocol is, is pretty much something, it's a clinical protocol and it's something that's been sort of researched. Well, it's been researched, but, but it, it's still a trial right. and, and it's, um, it's just, it's still, it's still practice. Right. So they know answer. that, it's going to cause certain side effects um, immediately. Like everybody knows most drugs, it's going to cause nausea, um, hair loss, confusion, dizziness. But what they don't know um, a lot of times is what it's going to cause five years from now or 10 years from now or, or that, or what some of those things, like if it drops your, um, a lot of chemotherapy drops your ability to fight infection. But they don't really know what that does to a 12-year-old who... You know, if her immune system is suppressed, then what else is going on with, with her, yeah, with developmentally, else, yeah. yeah. So, because they develop, most of these drugs are developed for adult cancers. They're not developed for childhood cancers. And even in adults, the, the treatment's still so... It is, but their body's not growing and changing. Yeah. So, when you're talking to a child, um, I mean, just a, a little, to go on a little bit longer, um, because... Becky was 12 and she was going through puberty at the time that she was diagnosed, then it affected all those systems, her reproductive systems. And so she was told she wouldn't be able to have children because of that. And, um, but she has a four year old. So, um, mm. but a lot of, but she, <laughs> but, but, you that's know, wonderful. yeah, but that system was really, um, it was really delayed and it was effective, affected adversely, um, because of that. So, yeah. What, what is, uh, what is leukemia? Um, like I know it's a type mm -hmm. of cancer. Um, leukemia, is... um, there's different kinds of white blood cells. Um, and if I misspeak, if I misspeak, what do you mean? Because you're the doctor, but, <laughs> but I am sort of a momcologist, but there's different in layman's terms, there's different types of white blood cells, um, within the body. And, um, and then you have red blood cells and platelets. So those are your three main types of cells that form up the blood. And then there's plasma that they float around in. But um, the different types of white blood cells have different functions. Some fight viruses, some fight um, antibodies. I mean, there's, there's, I'm not a white blood cell doctors, but all the cells come from the bone marrow, which is, you know, in your hips and your, there's different places, you know, where oh. the, so they're all formed there and they start out as these little things called well, they're little baby cells. They're called blasts. And those cells then, um, within their DNA and their RNA, are told, well, this little guy, this little baby's going to be a red blood cell, which carries your oxygen, your hemoglobin. Yeah. And this little blast guy is going to be a platelet, which helps your blood clot. And this little guy is going to be a white blood cell. And then further on, it's going to be a leukocyte, or it's going to be a monocyte, or it's going to be a neutrophil. So there's all these different things that can become... Um, but what happens with leukemia is for some reason, something is in the DNA of that or the RNA of that, that little baby blast. And 
it says, well, I'm not going to make red blood cells. I'm not going to make anything else platelets. I'm just going to make these white blood cells. And I, specifically, oh, wow. I'm going to make leukocytes. So then once the cells mature, they go out into the bloodstream from the marrow. I don't really know how they get there, but they get there somehow. They get out into the bloodstream. Um, and then eventually, because each cell only has a specific life, like platelets only live like three days, um, red blood cells live about 90 days, um, and white blood cells, well, they have different functions. So after a, after a while, you've got this bloodstream going around, and the red blood cells have died off, and the platelets, they're not being replenished. So pretty soon, the bone marrow is like full of all these little baby blasts that have become um, leukocytes and then your bloodstream is full of leukocytes and now there's hardly any red blood cells carrying oxygen there's no platelets Whoa. or very few carrying um, or able to clot um, you know if you injure yourself or if you bump yourself or even just injury within the organs so now it's like full of these white blood cells and meanwhile there's not enough room in the bone marrow so all these little blasts are coming out and that's how they diagnose it is um, well, there you get symptomatic, um, usually within about, they call it acute because it happens very quickly within six months. So um, the blood cells are, the red blood cells are dying. So people get pale, they lose weight, um, they get become very dizzy, not enough oxygen's going to their systems. Right. So your red blood count drops and then um, they start getting little bruises and, and bleeding. And like, for example, Becky had braces and, and she went into the dentist and it was like, it was like an emergency situation and we didn't realize she had leukemia at the time. So there's all these little things adding up and about the three month point is where it's a life or death situation because then you can have liver failure, you can have a brain bleed. But so they did a blood draw and that's when they saw, oh yeah, you need to go, you need to, go to the hospital because um, it was almost all leukocytes and there were blasts. There were these baby cells in there, these baby blood cells that shouldn't even have been in there. They should have stayed in the bone marrow. So, um, and her what her um, platelet count instead of 400,000 was um, like 28,000, it was ridiculously low. And um, her red blood cells, instead of her hemoglobin being like 14, it was three. So, um, so it was an emergent emergency situation. So then she, then when they do a bone marrow biopsy, and then that's when they saw that her bone marrow um, was almost completely involved with leukemia with a leukocyte. So then they have to target that, and and that's and that's what becomes toxic because they've got to target the um, yeah. And meanwhile, they're sending off the cells and the samples to determine exactly what type of leukemia, but um, but they've got to kill everything in the bone marrow and start from scratch to to make sure that those cancerous, crazy. Um, baby blasts that only want to make leukocytes. They have to kill all of them. So, and then hope that the body kicks in and then starts making normal ones. And um, that doesn't always happen. And one of the things I learned with Becky is that normally remission happens within like the first treatment. Hers didn't, hers took um, 30 something days. Um, so she had to get several rounds. Um, and sometimes all they can do is, um, they can do a bone marrow transplant. That's what a bone marrow, you know, yeah. to, to introduce specifically healthy cells, but you have to have a match. So, Ooh. um, so we didn't, she didn't have a match. So that's why they started this clinical trial of, um, that by specific frequencies, they could target the cells 
and then give these injections to build up white blood cells. Um, it's like a gamma globulin type thing, but um, but they had to do all that to like build up the the good cells. And then yeah. they would have to routinely, obviously they're drawing blood all the time. And But as you're doing that, it's killing all the healthy cells too. So then it takes a while for the hemoglobin to come back up. It takes a while for the platelets to come back up. So then meanwhile, you're getting transfusions of tons of packed red cells and tons of platelets. And um, and then the the impact of that, what does that do to the heart? What does that do the to the body to, to have all these... I mean, there's other people's stuff. It's it's yeah. not your own stuff that you're producing. So it's things from other people, and um, and so that basically is what leukemia is in a in a layman's term. But it's it's pretty into it's more than just you know oh you know little kid with bald with a bald yeah, head. Yeah, that's what and what I was gonna say. <clears throat> I mean, I feel like the general population thinks that cancer is a tumor growing on something, and that that's about as far as it goes. They're like right. either there's a tumor and where where it's located is what the cancer is or mm -hmm. and i mean every i mean i didn't know that yeah i knew that i knew that i know that lymphoma is blood cancer also mm -hmm. right i didn't know that leukemia was mm -hmm. i didn't know if they were... yeah it's a it's a blood cancer and and then like wendy's working on um she's in cardio oncology um, no one really knows what does that do to have a hemoglobin of three what does that do to your heart muscle is is heart muscle dying while that's happening um what does not having any platelets do to your heart because there's always injury going on in your body is the way it was explained to me so so you always have these little minute bleeds throughout your body but the platelets take care of that and the other different white blood cells they have all their little jobs in there and um and the red blood cells they're carrying oxygen i mean they were amazed the doctors were amazed that she didn't have any um brain damage or um, um, liver or heart damage were the were the three biggies that they were really amazed at because of the amount of oxygen that those organs take. Um, so who knows if her heart muscle was was damaged while you know or mm -hmm. or um, you know be, became ischemic because it didn't get enough oxygen and um, because she was routinely passing out. So she was passing out. She was losing weight. Um, and I just chalked it up to get your butt outside. You're 12. You're whiny, and uh, yeah. And you just you don't know. I mean, normal parents don't go around saying, "Well, let's let's go get my daughter checked for for cancer." You just right. don't know. So, and we don't know why it started. We don't know if she had an oncogene always. You know, there's these theory. Do they still talk about that, Wendy? Oncogenes that there's certain genes that carry. Um, yeah. The. Um... There are certain genes that are known to have an increased risk for different types mm -hmm. of cancers. Um, I think probably the one that people are most familiar with is the idea of the BRCA gene for breast cancer. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of folks, I think, are, are kind of um, aware of that idea. But, yeah, genetics can certainly um, play a role. Yeah. And then, Barbara, do you want to talk at all about um you, you mentioned that she was on antibiotics for three years mm -hmm. but maybe um help folks understand a little bit about you know um infection concerns in folks who have and are undergoing treatment mm -hmm. for cancer and how that looks like and and um affects what activities you do in life right. and 
you know, even foods you eat and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, um, she was on um, a low-dose prophylactic antibiotic for, well, for the three years. But even then, um, like one of the things that that you're told as a, as a parent, um, as a caregiver, is you have to watch for a fever. So any fever over 100, not 102, not 101, but anything over 100 was a life or death situation because um, it meant there was an infection and her body just couldn't fight it. Because when you get a fever, it's because your body's fighting an infection. Um, and um, But we couldn't, we had to limit ourselves. We couldn't go to buffets like, you know, like, I don't know, like a salad yeah. bar or um, a function, you know, like a church supper or a military farewell. You couldn't do that. Um, and um, everything had to be cleaned um, all the time. Like we pretty much lived at the Ronald McDonald House um, in North Dakota, which is where we were stationed at the time. So when I'd be coming back home, then my husband would start cleaning everything and we had to limit her exposure to things. She got, you know, I had to take care of her schooling for a year. She wasn't allowed to go to school. Um, anybody that was sick, forget it. Don't even come near me. Don't right. even come near the house. Um, she got a sinus infection that turned into um, just some massive infection to where they had to give her morphine for the pain because her body couldn't fight it. So, um, and then the infections that you get, you can get from the um, from the IV transfusions from um, the blood cells and the platelets. They have to go through these very specific filters to filter out um, different types of um, infection causing, or even not infection, but inflammatory yeah. um, causing things. So, so yeah, you pretty much change your life um, for that whole time. And, um, and if, if she was like, we had to have her braces completely taken off. So you can't have braces when you're going through chemotherapy. It's just not a good thing because you're cutting up the mouth. Um, and then all the stuff that you're on for um, infection, what it does, I mean, um, most women are aware that you can get yeast infections if you're on a lot of antibiotics. But what it can cause, what it causes in cancer patients, especially children, is they get um, thrush. If anybody's had a baby that's had thrush, it's not fun. Well, the cancer, um, the chemotherapy, because you have no immune system, um, it allows the yeast to flourish. So then you get thrush in the mouth. So she would have, so mouth sores are really, really common. Um, they're a common side effect of yeah. of not having an, an immune system at all. So, so that's is that what you meant to to highlight on? Yeah. So yes, yeah. it's it's yeah. pretty much you're you're like the infection police when when your child is doing that. And then now, um, and I know with coronavirus, there are a lot of um, I mean, there's just as many cancer patients and kids with cancer now as there were before coronavirus, um, but I know it's made um, parents yeah. of kids with cancer even more scared uh, because of the um, contagiousness, like flu. I mean, flu season, we always hated the wintertime because you're stuck inside and and that just was more of a risk. Most of the major infections Becky got were in the wintertime. Um, but um, with um, coronavirus, because of the infection, uh, the infectiousness of it, I know that a couple of the local um, families, um, kids with cancer, they're they're pretty freaked out by it because yeah. because your immune system is so suppressed, and um, so I'm just glad I don't, you know, I'm glad I didn't have to go through what we went through right twenty now. some years ago. I didn't. I'm glad we don't have we didn't have to go through that now. So 
and the big um, the big flu that they had the the bird flu she was already she was already out of um, treatment when that happened so and after treatment how does how does it is, and all that I mean uh, there's obviously still things to be aware of but when treatment's over the immune system yeah, the immune system's itself. getting yeah, the immune system's getting healthy throughout the treatment, and then and that's why it goes in phases, um, you know, because they don't want to bombard the body, you know, for thirty six months straight with with the same chemotherapy. But but a sign of um, you just sort of watch for them to get sick, and if they get sick and they're able to recover on their own, then then yeah, they're healthy. But but it takes. I don't know, it took me like, I'm still not really over it, and it's been since 1999 when she finished treatment, but but it took me a good 10 years to not freak out every time she had an infection or had a fever or had a rash um, because, yeah. because you're just worried that, well, what if she can't recover? What if her um, immune system has not recovered? Then, you know, is the cancer back? And Because sometimes that's how you find out that the, the cancer has recurred is, they keep getting infections and that was one of the signs too that she had was because her body couldn't fight it so she was getting infections and antibiotics just wouldn't touch it but but yeah her immune system now is um is normal and um and she's able to to fight infections but there are other systems that are that are affected where um they're not normal and it is because of the chemotherapy and the radiation that she got or even the treatments like having a baby because she had 50 something spinal taps um just get it took like an hour for them to do the epidural mm -hmm. yeah so because there's so much scar tissue yeah that was one of the things we talked about for right uh, when we first spoke was how intense that was, was yeah when my jaw dropped i was that's crazy um, also, what about, you know, you go through these three years where, like you said, you're at Ronald McDonald house a lot mm -hmm. of the time, so you're not necessarily home for a year. She, you had to do all her schooling, so she's mm -hmm. not in school with right. friends and things like that. And when finally all of that is over, what's it like trying to go back to the life you had before? How does that, how does that work? Well, it's like um, it's like having an elephant in the room when it first happens. So you have this giant elephant living in your living room and you're constantly bumping into it and it's really screwing up your life and, and you have to move all the furniture. I'm just using all these metaphors, but you have to move everything around in your life and work around this giant elephant and nothing else is visible. I mean, you can't see, that's all you focus on. So. Um, my husband, he focused on the other kids in the house and I focused on Becky. That was it. That was my job. So then when um, she got, and, and then when they told me after a month, they said, oh, you need to take her home and we're going to do treatment, you know, here and outpatient. And that totally freaked me out because I thought she'd, I thought she'd be in the hospital the whole time she was in treatment. And I think a lot of people think that. Um, but so for three years I'm dealing with that and then when it was over then all of a sudden this elephant is out of your room and and there's this big space there's you've moved everything else out of your life you've moved your marriage your relationship with your other kids you barely you know put any energy into your job or hobbies or anything and now it's gone 
And so what do you do with that giant space? So there's no more elephant in the room. And, and so now what? So it's like this sense of emptiness and, um, and it, it really caused a lot of anxiety and stress, um, on, on our marriage. Um, that was probably the worst time was 99 to 2000 because that was right at the end of her treatment and um, and when she was out of treatment that was and at the time my the Air Force decided to send my husband on a remote so he was gone for 12 months but um, and we were both active duty military so that was fun but um, but it made it made things really difficult afterwards um, my relationship with with Becky when she was healthy then I was like this helicopter mom. Mm. I was, you know, like, oh, well, you can't do this and you can't go there. And of course she's, what was she like almost, she was 16. So she's like, whatever. So she's, you know, rebelling and, and going through, you know, teenage and adolescent type behavior. And, and I'm like, totally not okay with that. I'm totally not okay with you dating and, you know, being around people. And what if you get sick? And what if I'm not there when this happens? And, and um, it and it caused a lot of anxiety in me, um, and that's one of the effects that they don't look at. I don't think. Well, I think St. Baldrick's and other foundations are looking at it, but um, so many people like to throw the term PTSD around very loosely, like everybody. You know, now they have coronavirus PTSD, but and I'm not saying that people don't have um, traumatic side effects, but I think to throw that label on it is cheapening it causes a lot of long-term anxiety and um, depression and how you deal with things. It yeah. caused it in me and it caused it in my daughter. So, you know, there's, that's one of the other effects that I don't think people really look at. So that's really good that you asked that question because a lot of people just think, well, you know, they're healthy. So meh. it's over. So, so they're over. They, they've got hair now and they, they've got their portacast taken out and, they're not taking medication anymore and they're not throwing up. So they must be okay. And mom can go back to work or dad and, and you don't have to worry anymore. But that's always in the back of my mind. Um, for example, she had some um, scare. She had some really weird um, rash on her, on her breasts about five years after she got out of treatment. And there's a type of really rare breast cancer and I forget the the name of it, but that's the that's the that's the um, symptom. Is there's this this rash, and I'm like, oh my God, Becky, you have you have this breast cancer, and it's caused by your chemotherapy. So that's one of the things that, and that's a side effect of being a momcologist. And and the the reverse is true for her. Um, instead of her worrying about it all the time, she just went into denial. So, you know, so then she took up less than healthy um, so the opposite. habits yeah. um, and, you know, like she smokes. So, and should she be smoking? No, but definitely as a childhood cancer survivor, she should not be smoking. But that I've seen that in a lot of, we jokingly called it the cancer brat club because they were all adolescents, the kids that she hung around with in um, Columbia, South Carolina. And um, a lot of them took on this very dangerous um, just, I don't care type of attitude and because their parents are worried or because they were in hospitals for so long, they're just like, okay, I'm done. Psh, the heck with you people. I'm going to go yeah. drink. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to 
race cars. I'm gonna I'm gonna just tempt fate. The and pre the pre thirty. I'm not gonna go to the doctor. Um, and I still have um, arguments with her over getting screened and going to the doctor, and and it just it's um it's really that the mental effects and the psychological effects of um, childhood cancer are just I don't I think they're very understudied. I agree, and I think you know to some extent it's because they want for themselves the same things we want, mm-hmm. which is for. Um, life after treatment to be like it was before they got diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's really hard for all of us, but especially if you're young or an adolescent when that happens, Mm -hmm. to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, unfortunately the reality is is that you're not like everybody else. And you're always going to have this history. Um, And um from our side you know as um providers we do see that um you know people are anxious and some of what we try to do is um have our survivors see us in spaces that are outside of where Mm -hmm. they receive treatment because having to go back to that same area you know that can create anxiety and um, bring back things that, you know, maybe people don't necessarily want to have to face right then. Right. They, um, so, one of the, and that's interesting because one of the treatment rooms at, um, when she was at the first year she was undergoing treatment. And even when she moved to when we moved to South Carolina, cause we, the air force was good enough that we could apply to move somewhere closer to treatment. So we didn't have to be in the North Dakota winters dealing with it, but the treatment room in Bismarck and the treatment room in South Carolina, they both had fish, like fish wallpaper. Because fish is, I don't know, it's very common for childhood, you know, pediatric type practices. And unfortunately, that was also the treatment room. So um, I would, so when kids were like, no, I don't want to go in the fish room. So that becomes, you know, they, they start um, associating pictures of fish or cute little um, aquarium type motifs for your bathroom that that induces anxiety and as silly as that sounds um, Becky will not use any like tropical fish type um, decorations at her house because it reminds her of the treatment room where she had to get her her um, spinal taps or where she had to get um, you know her port access so and it's just weird you know and providers and um, hospitals, you know, clinicians, um, they need to realize this, that whatever, like you said, you know, whatever environment they're in when they're receiving this this treatment, regardless, I mean, especially children, that they're going to associate that with, with that pain and with that fear. And then it becomes um, that they want to avoid that at all costs. So, you know, you'll, you know, I would see kids, you know, screaming, you know, no, I don't want to go in the fish room. So it is, yeah, but it's just fish. It's, we're just going to take your blood pressure in here. No, you're not. So, so they would freak out because they would think that, you know, if they went and Becky would just panic if she yeah. went to a, you know, a doctor and they had fish decorating the walls because she thought they were going to do something. I'm like, no, no, honey, they're just, it's just a normal doctor visit. And then, but to her, there was no such thing as a normal doctor visit. Right. So. Yeah, Understandably so. Yeah. But, you know, I think, um, like you said, that kind of experience 
sometimes can push people away from doing their surveillance and kind mm-hmm. of maintenance things. And um, one thing that I hope that we can share through this is um, just helping people, you know, understand that it's okay to get your medical care wherever you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, going back to the same hospital or the same providers where you receive treatment doesn't work for you, that's okay, mm-hmm. you know, but just make sure that you do follow up with somebody mm-hmm. and get your screening. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I think uh, because I work in cardiology, a lot of the folks I take care of are worried that um, I'm going to do a screening test and find a heart issue, right? And now mm-hmm. they have another thing to deal with. Right. But it, it getting screening doesn't necessarily mean that. So we know, for example, that high blood pressure is bad for anybody, but there's lots of good research to show that particularly in our survivors, it's even worse than it would be for someone who didn't have that history. And so just, you know, it's not, when you go for screening, it's not always about um, looking or finding something new that's gonna be a big issue to deal with. Part of screening is just being really proactive about things that can come up in anybody's life, Mm -hmm. but being really careful about finding those things early and treating them so that we prevent those other issues from coming up. And I think it's important that we, you know, try to share that with folks that it's important to get treatment wherever you feel comfortable and wherever you feel comfortable is the right place for you. And that the second thing is, you know, being proactive is, is huge because the um, little things we find like a high blood pressure and starting medicines for that can make a big difference in terms of what someone's health is going to look like 20 Mm -hmm. years down the road. That's the, I feel like the hardest would be the hardest balance is between doing what's right and not being overly stressed or mm-hmm. a hypochondriac and continuing to stress so much that you create the problem that you're trying to prevent, especially with the heart, um, an endless amount of them. Um, but as a cardiac oncologist, uh, what are some of the things that you are, are most common, um, that you end up seeing? Um, it, it varies depending on, of course, for each person it's different, but also depending on what therapies they received, right? So um, radiation therapy, for example, um, may have an effect on the heart, but it, it depends on where in the body they needed mm-hmm. to receive radiation. So if someone, for example, has breast cancer, but it's a right-sided breast cancer, even if they receive radiation therapy, it's um, less likely that that's going to affect their heart because that radiation treatment was further away. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, we're, we're really lucky um, that not only our oncologists, but radiation oncologists as well have made a lot, a lot of progress. And so even for folks who have breast cancer on the left side or have another type of um, cancer that needs 
therapy that's close to the heart, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they can really minimize the radiation dose. And that's really important for what kind of effects, um, late effects can occur is, you know, how much radiation did the heart receive? But um, radiation, you know, can cause issues with the heart valves where they either become leaky or too tight. Um, It can cause issues with the heart muscles ability to pump. Um, It can um, increase the risk for blockages in heart arteries or, you know, for folks who receive therapy to their neck, it can increase the risk for blockages Mm -hmm. in those arteries as well. So for um, survivors of breast cancer who have received radiation therapy, that's something we think about. It also, you know, breast cancer, just like everything else, it's not just one thing. And so um, there are different types of chemotherapy that people receive as well. And some of them, if they include medications in that same family, like what Becky received with the doxorubicin, then there's the potential for an increased risk of heart failure, valve problems, um, sometimes heart rhythm issues can come up. Um, but some of the other treatments are less likely to cause that. So it, it all depends. It's very customized because no two individuals yeah. who have mm-hmm. cancer get exactly the same treatment. Yeah. What is the difference? What are the, what is the difference between radiation and chemotherapy? Simply, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so um, chemotherapy is something that more traditionally is given by vein, or sometimes it can be given by pill form. And so it's a treatment that um, the whole body is going to see in, in some form, fashion or another. Um, and it's it's similar um, in the principle that both chemotherapy and radiation therapy are designed to try to kill the cancer cells. Um, they're also similar in that both potentially can affect other cells as well. Yeah. Radiation therapy is more um, of something that you would receive in a hospital or similar setting. And they usually will have folks, you know, um, laying down on a table and actually provide um, energy to the tissues that need to be treated. That is usually either like um, photon or proton based therapy. Yeah, like, and it's targeted. Like with Becky, she she got cranial radiation because the a lot of it is prophylactic because they know that the chemotherapy they inject into the spinal fluid it can only go so deep into the the cerebral spinal fluids um, surrounding your brain. Yeah. And and they also researchers know that a lot of the recurrent um, leukemia with leukemias especially that it can come from the the, the brain from the cerebral spinal fluid. So, but since the chemical can only go so deep, then what they do is they do radiation in the brain and they, they put little tattoos and they, they, they have like this mask thing, like looks like a tennis racket type thing, but they make this mold and then they screw it down onto a board. They screw the, the head, you know, they put it over yeah. the face 
and then they so the person has to lay completely still because with any radiation it's got to be if it targets the wrong thing it could burn it because you're burning cells so since hers was cranial she had to lay completely still because it could have you know gotten the eye yeah so um so she had to do so many rads every day for two weeks and um so they were specifically targeting the the fluid around the brain that um the the chemical couldn't get to because the brain is just wonderful and it's protected and it's like no mm-hmm. we're not letting those chemicals in so so that was how they would hopefully kill any cancer cells but they don't know if there's cancer cells in there they're just doing it as a prevention and i think with um with males with leukemia they also do testicular radiation i'm pretty sure or they used to i don't know if they still do but um because that was one of the recurrent that's how cancer could come back a lot in boys so so of course is there that was reason would... for that why is that it comes back there because it's a hormonal thing or... i don't know but i know that most boys that have had um, leukemia are also sterile so yeah i think it probably has to do with like barbara was saying you know these spots in the body where the chemicals just can't, can't penetrate as well and so there's those are the spots where um cells maybe can can hide kind of hide mm-hmm. and escape from yeah. the therapy because oh, you're thinking wow. your brain and your reproductive system i mean the way that the body is miraculously designed is you know one is for reproduction and the other is for well your mind so so they're they have the most protection yeah um, of anything those cells that that can form so so unfortunately if you get cancer they they know that yeah like you said that that's where they're going to hide and um, is the brain and the um the reproductive organs And, and in men it doesn't really hide so much in women but but in men i think because um those reproductive cells are being formed new every day whereas in women uh, you have you're, you're born with as many eggs as you're ever going to have so you don't make new ones so um so the worry is with um with young men is that um one is that some cancer genes going to get in there hide and then affect the other cells and then testicular cancer yeah. is really common one of becky's yeah. friends actually had leukemia twice and then testicular cancer once so it actually came back. Um, about the biologics. So we're talking about all these cells and targeting things. And um, I I'm just got into the stock market. Uh, and I've noticed that all these biological pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. are like skyrocketing because of all this new, yeah. seemingly, well, to me, new uh, research about all of this. Like I was... Um, I first heard about biologics because I have an arthritis condition that causes a lot of bone pain. And, um, that's when I first learned about how they worked. Um, and then, and that's what I thought it was for. And then, uh, come to find out, I mean, and it made perfect sense that the research coming from that is really more cancer research than it Mm is arthritis research. It seems because of, what they're doing with it, how it works. Yeah, because that that didn't they didn't I don't think that was an option. Twenty, how many ever yeah. years? Nineteen ninety six. That was not an option. Um, I mean, no. it was pretty much you were stuck with what they had, and now that's the new things. It's just amazing. 
and that's true. You know, I think it's um, with the different types of therapies that are out there, there's really, um, I think, two big categories that are used essentially to try and help the immune system recognize cancer cells mm-hmm. and clear them from the body on, on their own. And so the hope behind these is that because unlike chemotherapies or radiation therapies that affect every single cell they encounter by using the immune system to say, oh, these cells are foreign and dangerous and cancer cells that need to be removed from the body. These cells are healthy cells that can stay in the body that hopefully in the future, you know, we um, can do even better for our survivors and that late effects will be even less. Um, There's really two um, big categories, I think, of different therapies that are trying to harness the immune system. And one is something called CAR-T or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. And um, that actually came out probably around 2017. Mm -hmm. and so it would not have been available, um, like you were saying, for, for Becky, but it, um, it's used, it was first approved um, for adults, but also for, for children. So it can be used in pediatric cancers. Um, and what it is, is it's um, a method by where T cells, which are a type of immune cell, are removed from the body, they're harvested from the body, they go through a process in a laboratory where um, their receptors are changed so that their ability to recognize cancer cells is increased, and then they're infused back into the body. Are they specific Um, to to the person, to the patient, or can they use anybody's T cells? Right now, primarily, they take T-cells from the patient Oh wow! Um, and then uh, modify them. Mm. But there is um, work to look at potentially creating a CAR-T therapy that is more off the shelf, kind of, to mm-hmm. say, where, you know, it would already be um, produced and could just be given rather than having to harvest cells from the specific person. Is that why some people freeze the um, umbilical cord? The stem cells? The stem cells? Or is that something different? Um, That's a a little bit different, although I think, you know, in in theory, some of the idea is similar, right, in that those are Mm -hmm. cells that are unique Mm -hmm. to to a person. Um, And then the other type of medication or therapy that's come out to really enhance the immune system is something called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Hmm. And so these also work with the T cells. Um, But, you know, T cells need to be able to recognize abnormal cells, but also normal cells. And the way they do that is through these things called checkpoints. And so when, you know, they're in the body and they encounter a normal cell, these proteins on the T cell and the normal cell will interact with each other 
in a way to tell the T cell, okay, this is a normal, healthy cell in the body. Yeah. And, and that, that's called um, a checkpoint. Hmm. Cancer cells um, can be really uh, sneaky in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them actually so will overexpress these proteins Mm -hmm. so that when the T cell comes by, the T cell gets fooled into thinking Mm -hmm. this is a normal cell. And so these medications are supposed to inhibit that communication between the T cell and the cancer cell so that the T cell will actually recognize it as um, abnormal and therefore clear it from the body. So they'll just actually attack it and... yeah. And clear it out as a normal wow. white blood cell would. And they just yeah. get rid of it. So without yeah. having to give medication um, or poison, basically, to um, to kill all the cells, including that cell. So it just specifically targets that cell. That's, that's, that's amazing research. That's the yeah. hope. You know, it's... Um, these therapies are imperfect and Mm -hmm. so one of the things about immune checkpoint inhibitors is that because they're um, inhibiting this communication between t-cells and cancer cells sometimes um, it can also affect the communication between t-cells and normal cells Mm -hmm. and so you know people can develop things like um, signs of a of immune system activity, like inflammation in their gut, their skin. Um, In very rare cases, they can develop that in the heart. Um, But overall, it's um, a very promising therapy um, that has really helped us, in some cases, cure folks that traditional therapies were not Mm -hmm. working for. Um, and more importantly, it's, it's a more specific therapy. And I think, um, you know, I'm the optimist, but I think as we continue to learn about these drugs and ways to perfect them and make them even better, we're going to find that we have to use less of the traditional therapies mm-hmm. and we can be more specific in, in how we're treating cancer. Yes, that's great. That's a good outlook. Um, that really uh, covers what I was wanting to cover um, mostly other than talking about St. Baldrick's and how to help them and what we can do to uh, point people in your direction. So, you know, I think St. Baldrick's is amazing for our community in a lot of ways. Um, Obviously for our kids with cancer and survivors and families, but also they are incredible for people like me who want to do research in this area. And they, um, without their support, I couldn't do what I do. That That's flat out the truth. Um, but they also um, are invaluable at connecting me with people mm-hmm. like yourself and like Barbara. Yeah. And I think one of the really um, unique and special things about St. Baldrick's is that they are um, involved with the community on a personal level and help us connect better to each other on that level. And um, they, they've just been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
my my research in particular is actually um, supported by the Tomorrow's Fund, which is a hero fund. And so that means that it is a fund that um, is to honor um, a specific person. And so mine is actually to honor um, mm -hmm. Barbara's daughter, Becky, which is also um, a really great privilege. Oh. Yeah, we picked um, with um, St. Baldrick's, and I didn't realize this. Oh, you're getting emotional. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> we, um, Becky, do you want me to tell a little bit how Absolutely. we got involved in yeah. St. Baldrick's? Um, when Becky was out in California um, going to college, she heard about, obviously, she's very passionate about cancer research and uh, cancer fund you know, childhood cancer fundraising. She heard about this group that was having a head shaving, and this was in 2005, probably their first one, actually, um, and it was out in California, and she decided to sign up and, and go help them. So she's just that type of person. And she shaved her head, and then the next year she had her own event. Um, she said, how do I do this? So she signed up as a volunteer event organizer, and got like half the Navy base out there, Port Wanimi and the Coast Guard, they all came and shaved their heads and, and it was a huge success. So then that sort of, and of course, you know, she's sending me, you know, please donate. So I donated to her fundraiser. Um, and then she would have this almost every year. She's probably shaved her head four or five times mm -hmm. and gotten her husband and his coworkers to shave their heads. And um, so wherever they move with the Navy, she's had, cause he's a Navy CB, she's had events. Um, so it's sort of hard for St. Baldrick's to keep up with where she is at any one point in time. But but she's been having events um, for quite a while. And in 2017, um, I decided to form a team here in Brevard and said, well, we're going to have a team and support Becky's fundraiser. And so her fundraiser, I think, was in Virginia or Missouri, wherever they were stationed at the time. And so we had a bowling event. And... Um, we raised a little over $4,000. So then I think Becky raised like 40,000 or something total. Then um, the following year I said, well, that's it. I'm not gonna support her anymore. I'm gonna have my own. So mm -hmm. I had my own event <laughs> and we decided to have a head shaving. It was at Acousta Brewing and, um, and uh, we raised 17,000 here on our own event. And, um, and then of course she was our, always our honored kid. And then of course, a couple of local um, cancer kids, um, Holmes Dismelik is one, and then a couple that are angels that have passed away. Um, so we raised 17,000. I said, well, I'm gonna do it again, 2019. So we did it in 2019 and we raised about 29,000. And then last year, um, because um, of the cumulative amount of money that we've raised, both Becky and, um, and our events, um, St. Baldrick said, well, they approached us and said, well, you've raised at least 10,000 this year and you've raised over a hundred thousand, um, throughout the course of your, of the existence of Becky having fundraisers and me. So they said, um, you're eligible to create a hero fund. So I said, well, you know, Becky's my hero. So, so I'm going to name it after her. And then I approached Becky and said, well, you know, I, what do you want the focus to be? Because you can make it a focus on her specific type of cancer. You could make a focus on um, specific areas of the country, but she specifically wanted to focus on survivorship. So then, um, so I said, well, and then we thought about a name and I thought it was a really cute 
play on words. I call it Tomorrow's Research Fund because her last name, her married name now is Morrow. So we, we just hyphenated Tomorrow, T-O, and then hyphen Morrow's Research Fund. And then um, once we said, yeah, this is what we want to do, this is our focus, then what St. Baldrick's does, and this is where, like Wendy said, they're so amazing, they have a grant award process. They have a couple throughout the year, but they have a big one in June, July timeframe. And they, people apply, like Wendy, they apply for um, grants to be um, from, you know, this private, you know, nonprofit organization. So there were three that were in the area of survivorship. And um, Kelly um, and her, I think it's, her last name escapes me, but she is in charge of all the hero funds. I think it's Forba. But um, Kelly um, sent me these three funds and or these three grants um, applicants. And um, I don't even remember what the other two were. I just remember that you know it said, "Oh, Dr. <laughs> Wendy Bottenorris at first because she's a she's a woman," and I'm like, "Oh, that's awesome." And um, and then that really impressed Becky. Um, and then also that she was dealing with um, the doxyrubicin and other things on the cardiac function and cardiac survivorship. And that just really talked to me because when I remembered when Becky got that treatment and I specifically remember the cardiologist saying she cannot get any more of this. I'm like, wow, I'm supposed to remember this. So, so and that just really hit me that, um, that it was going to have that of long lasting of effect. So that's why I chose, I said, well, then we're going to fund um, Dr. Botnor and her research. So, um, so as since we had raised over a hundred thousand dollars then, and I really don't know how they move the money around, but St. Baldrick's does this amazing um, way of, of awarding the grant. So then they notified Dr. Botnor, I guess in 2019, right? And said, hey, your research is being funded by this fund. And she's like, yay. And um, and then this year when they had the grant award process again, and we've raised over 18000 by the way, which is not too shabby in a pandemic year. Because um, we did a lot of virtual things. Um, but um, they asked me if I wanted to support a different fund. I said, no, I want to support Wendy's research. So, so yeah, we're what this community does um, to support our fundraisers. Um, while a lot of people will ask, well, how does it affect our hometown? You know, is it going right to Brevard? A lot of people will ask that. Is it going right to wherever you're holding it? And I can, without a doubt, say yes. You know, maybe you don't see the connection, but, but the research that um, Wendy is doing is going to directly impact people like Holmes and Becky and, and other childhood cancer survivors um, by helping them, by doing that research. So when, you know, they reach that dangerous age of 39 mm -hmm. or 40 um, and to screen them up until that point. So, um, so yeah, so St. Baldrick's does contact um, Hero Funds, um, the formers of them and ask them what they want to support. And so that's, that's really cool. That's how Wendy and I got, got um, joined together. So had you, so have say. you seen each other before? Today? No, we haven't seen each other before wow. today. We had only communicated via email um, and Facebook. And um, well, that's really cool. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just really neat. And then, but St. Baldrick's has um, a team and specifically one person that oversees it that hooks up all the hero funds with grant prospective grant applicants and then um so we're actually 
deciding where the they let us decide they don't just get all the money right. and then just throw it at whatever research project has the biggest voice or has the yeah. deepest pockets mm -hmm. um, like a lot of pharmaceutical companies so instead it becomes a personal i mean it's 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 very intimate to me um to know that and they, and they yeah. connect us yeah they know, connect um, us together they say not, oh here not. here's her email and here's hers and yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. it becomes very, very personal. Um, and it's, it's just really phenomenal. And there are a lot of hero funds for angels as well that have died of specific cancers. And, but, um, but Becky and I decided that that's what we wanted to focus on was survivorship. And she just, her, um, grant application just made the most sense for us. And so, here we are. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, really cool. Um, I did have a quick question about, um, are there other, uh, other, where are the other people like you? Oh, the, um, the VEOs or volunteer event organizers. Um, St. Baldrick's, like Wendy said at the beginning, is the largest private nonprofit in the world mm -hmm. supporting childhood cancer research. Um, and, and they do have events are sponsored by volunteers, um, they're all over the world. I mean, it started yeah. sort of small in, um, it actually started in New York City, but then after 9-11, it sort of got put on hold. Um, but it's headquartered out in California. So it's a lot more common to hear about them on the East Coast and the West Coast. But there are VEOs all over um, the world that have events. Mm -hmm. And there are also people that search for that, that you know, maybe their childhood cancer survivors or maybe their child has cancer or had cancer and died or survived. So they want to shave their head because kids lose their, yeah. their hair for cancer. So that's why it became known as the, the head shaving folks. But, but there are um, VEOs all over the world. Um, some are recurring, like we have an event every year. Some are just single events. Um, there's events that are that are much more noteworthy and much larger than mine that that raise like half a billion dollars, you know, like up in Boston. And um, but they are they're everywhere. And if you go on the Stbaldricks.org um, webpage, if you were interested in shaving your head or in starting an event or in donating to um, our specific fund, you can just search for an area, or you could search for a name, or you can search by disease, um, and you can either be part of that um, effort that's already ongoing or you can form your own. So um, so Becky started by going to an event, then she decided to have her own event, so she became a, a VEO. Um, and then I was just a donor for her events and then I became part of her event by forming a team. And then I decided to be a VEO. So it's... Um, it's, I don't want to say pyramid scheme because, but it's sort of like just spreads out and just grows. Um, it has a life of its own and it yeah. just becomes like, I get head shavies. I get people that sign up from South Carolina, from elsewhere. I've had people in Florida sign up to shave because um, they know me or because they know Becky. Um, so it just becomes worldwide. Um, there are head shavings in India, England. Mm -hmm. um, what? That's it's cool. everywhere, yeah. She's after my beard. Yeah, I am. I'm after yeah. Nate's beard. <laughs> it's 
a magnificent mirror, don't you think? <laughs> it is. You know, yeah, we do so have people they, like like raise money by shaving their beards too. So. Yep, I have to convince my three-year-old. Yes. But I'm getting in there. He just has to be the one to cut it. So. Um, I actually think that I'll uh, put that up with this podcast. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. Um, I think that was a lot of answers, a lot of cool statistics, a lot of cool uh, optimism, mm -hmm. um, which I think the people that are going to be looking for this are going to be looking for. That pretty pretty much sums it up. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the biggest thing that I would like to say is that, you know, childhood cancer is not rare. I mean, just in our little community, just in the past six years we've had, that I know of, we've had three kids pass away from cancer just in Transylvania County. Small. And we've had three that are currently in treatment. Yeah. Um, just in our little area. And we're just Western North Carolina. You know, yeah. we're, we're, and I still remember um, when Becky was diagnosed and she was going to the hospital in Bismarck, North Dakota. And at the outpatient clinic, I was asking the nurse, I said, oh, so this, you know, do you see a lot of this? I mean, there's a lot of kids coming in. She said, well, it's not so much the ones that we see. It's the ones that never make it in. Um, and I think that's even more um, dangerous now because people are not going to the doctor. They're not taking their children to the doctor because they're afraid. Um, so not just adults, but children, you know, they're not even taking them in to get their shots. Um, I think it's, it's going back, you know, it's not so prevalent now, but for the past eight or nine months, think of the children that, that maybe their diagnosis was yeah. missed. And so they, they miss that, yeah, they miss that key. You cannot diagnose leukemia or, um, or cardiac um, issues with a survivor. You cannot do that via telehealth. Yeah. You just cannot. It's got to be a hands-on blood draw, look at symptoms, look in the mouth, listen to the heart with a stethoscope, take their blood pressure. It's got to be that. So whether it's a, an initial diagnosis of cancer or um, checking for screening afterwards, um, sure, we do we need to use technology, but um, I don't like how the, it looks like it's going. That that's going to be the norm is telehealth and Zoom physicals. You just yeah, it's it's a scary thing. If um, I I know personally of people whose kids are going through treatment or adults going through treatment where their tests have been lost, where their tests have been delayed because um, and research that's been um, moved you know, that's been stolen from cancer research, especially childhood cancer research, and put on coronavirus research. So a lot of the, the money is following the noise. You know, the squeakiest wheel gets the grease. Um, so a lot of, um, so I think of, you know, right now, um, you shouldn't be worried all the time that your child is going to have cancer, but, you know, just use your gut feeling and um, if you're a cancer survivor, you still need to go in and be seen by a doctor and um, at least screened routinely. And if you really think something's wrong with your child, um, nobody should tell you that you can't um, see a provider, even if they come to your home. It should, you know, you can't do that via telehealth. You just can't. Yeah, that, that yeah. yeah. And I was gonna also, 
I guess without really getting into it because it's such a big topic, but then you have the healthcare industry on top of that. Mm-hmm. On the insurance. In America. So yeah, the insurance companies. Yeah, the so insurance tough. is a whole nother issue because then if you have survivors that don't have insurance that it's not covered, yeah. um, then they, they don't go to the doctor too. I don't know if you see that, Wendy, as a provider. I'm sure yeah, you do. Actually, I think one of the biggest time points where... Um, our survivors fall out of care is when they fall off their parents' insurance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that that's actually one of the biggest issues that we face. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've um, seen or heard of a survivor who says, you know, I need to come in and get all my screening because I fall off my parents' insurance mm-hmm. in so many months, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and then do they just don't go. Not out in the abyss, yeah. It's one of the yeah. ways that survivors fall out of care. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one of the things I know the STAR Act is looking at, too, is survivorship. Yeah. And how to deal with that insurance nightmare. And that's why it's so important that things like this get the attention that it mm-hmm. needs. Yeah. In my opinion, because the medical industry is so chaotic that you can't hear... Like you're saying, the noise, you can't hear what to focus on. And mm-hmm. things like this, every parent that hears it, when I heard it, it just is this loud bell that's like, wait, pay attention, you know, mm-hmm. wake up. And because uh, then the day comes, or if it comes, that you are in your position, mm-hmm. this is where you look and never thought twice to look before, right. you know. And so. Yep. Well, we appreciate, I really appreciate you doing this. I think it's phenomenal what you're doing. I mean, uh-huh. especially not, I mean, sure, you're a parent, but you're not, you're not a, a dad ecologist. So, um, so you're not really exposed to it per se, but, um, I hope, but I think it's, it's amazing that you're doing this. And I'm always amazed at the support that, um, that I get from the community. Um, it's just, and I know, um, Wendy's greatly appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I was so excited to do this because I think, um, you know, anytime we reach out to the community um, and can interact with each other, it's really meaningful. And like, you know, we were saying earlier, the more people that are aware means the more people that are going to become involved and try mm-hmm. to help. Um, yeah. But also I think it gives us an opportunity to highlight a really amazing foundation mm-hmm. yeah. and um, acknowledge what it is that that they do as well. Yes. St. Baldrick's. St. Baldrick's.org, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, that does it for us in this premiere episode of The Forecast. If you're interested, you, any of your friends, any buddy in the world can do a fundraiser like the ones that St. Baldrick's do. That's how, as you heard, um, Barbara and her daughter got started. They just started. It doesn't take much. Uh, And a few dollars from a lot of people can go a long way. Um, Cancer is on the rise uh, for a lot of different reasons, diets changed. Uh, one being that people are living a lot longer. Um, you know, there, there's so many factors. Um, and 
the other thing, like Barbara said, is that childhood cancer is not as rare as uh, society protects you from thinking it is. Um, it's It can knock on anybody's door. I was talking to somebody just the other day and said, you know, I feel like 10 years ago it was you might have known one person who had cancer. And now I know personally like 15 to 20. Some survived. Most survived, actually. Some didn't. Some had horrible things happen from it. Um, we need to do the research. The research needs our help. A lot of research on planet Earth needs our help. Um, but we'll get to those things in a later podcast. For this particular episode, I'd like to thank Barbara Ritchie for being humble and vulnerable enough to share her story and thank Dr. Botnor for giving us her time when she's got some serious research to do. Um, but mostly, thank you to St. Baldrick's for being there when for being there um i hope that i'm never in this position in barbara's position i hope that nobody is in this position fate could always say otherwise for now thank you for listening to the premiere episode of the forecast we look forward to having you listen to every episode of the podcast. This is not just about childhood cancer research. This is about the future. This is about help. This is about a positive attitude. This is about money, family, current events, society, social media, um, the stock market. I l would love to talk to you. Any one of you who have come across this podcast, listening to me speaking right now, reach out to me, email me at theforecast at weathervaneproductions.biz. I will respond to you. We can talk. We could figure out what it is you'd like to speak about. We can speak about it, get you on the podcast, make a phone call if you're local to the area, come into the Weathervane studio, and we'll... We'll talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the future. Once again, my name is Nathan Taylor with Weathervane Productions, and I appreciate you giving us your time and look forward to sharing some more with you. Thank you, and Happy New Year.